Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys. Today's episode of Other People is brought to you by the brand new Real Estates app. It's an app for your iPhone, your iPad, what have you. R-E-E-L, Estates, Real Estates. It's only 99 cents. Here's what it is. It's an app that shows you where the houses and apartments of your favorite fictional characters in film and television are actually located in real life. You want to see the Brady Bunch house in Studio City? The Real Estates app will take you there. Or what about Jeff Lebowski's bungalow in Venice Beach? done or how about hannah horvath's brooklyn apartment in the hit television show girls the real estates app knows all you've seen these places on the screen but with the real estates app you can see them in person it's a great way to explore your city plan a trip or take out of towners on a unique tour with photos maps directions and a database of over 450 locations throughout the country real estates is easy to use and extremely entertaining better yet it spans decades of pop culture with TV shows ranging from The Jeffersons to Modern Family and a whole host of films ranging from Breakfast at Tiffany's to Ted. With the click of a button, you can see which real estates are near you. For all you know, you could be blocks away from Marty McFly's house or Elliot's house in E.T. Uh, did you know that Connor from Highlander lived on the same block as Derek Zoolander? Now you do. Real estates where your favorite characters live for more information, go to real-estates.com. That's R-E-E-L-estates.com. Or just get it at the App Store. It's available now for only 99 cents. This is an app. You can apply it. Go and get it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right. right. All right, everybody. Here we go again. This is it. This is uh, other people. This is different than the last time. This is something that you ingest. Thank you for being here. My name is Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. California, and I'm sitting here uh, in an upright position. How are you today? I hope you're doing well. I thought uh, that I would start today's program off with some mail, some letters from listeners. I've been getting uh, quite a bit of mail about the Tao Lin episodes in particular, the uh, double episode, 
number 180 and number 181. But uh, before I begin, let me just remind you that I do post listener feedback uh, on the show's official website over at otherpeoplepod.com. So you can always go there and look for that if you want to read what people are saying. Uh, You know, the feedback that I get tends to be pretty interesting and varied and uh, opinionated. And uh, speaking of which, if you ever uh, want to send me your particular thoughts, tell me how you're doing, tell me a story, etc., the email address for the program is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. So uh, here is some listener feedback regarding Tao Lin's appearance on the show just a little while ago. Uh, First, a listener named Anonymous says, Dear Brad... Based on part one, it seemed like Tao was a difficult interview, seemed like he was in a fog. Long pauses in between everything, lackluster, boring, quote, sleepy, quote, out of it. Like he almost didn't want to be there. Uh, Another listener who goes by Femme Fatale tweeted, I just started listening and I love the podcast, especially... With Tao Lin, I liked how you guys spoke. Uh, a listener named Ty writes, Dear Brad, I've heard you mention Tao Lin on previous episodes, so I was excited to see his name when your latest show started to download on my phone. All I can say is this, Sam Pink, the sequel. So... Uh, He's referring to the uh, Sam Pink episode. And I think that's 123. I can't remember. But, you know, Sam was a guest on a previous show. Uh, Very popular episode. Uh, A listener named Patrick tweets, Tao was catatonic. This explains everything. He's fucking hilarious and mental. And then uh, a listener named Dimitri called the episode, quote, by far the most excruciating of all your shows I've heard so far. I haven't read any of Tao's work yet, but if it's anything like his conversational style, I doubt I'll be doing so anytime soon. I found myself wondering whether Lin was autistic or otherwise mentally or chemically impaired, or perhaps it's all an elaborate act. I'm hoping you'll draw more out of him in part two of the interview. So far, the effect is of a mental health counselor trying to draw out a non-communicative patient for therapeutic purposes. And uh, finally, Max Millwood, the program's most intensive and uh, consistent critic, he emails me at length uh, about every single episode. So... Uh, Max writes, the thing you need to understand about my generation is that the world we grew up in makes us somewhat autistic. We have so much information coupled with so much emotional retardation that talking to us and even more understanding us requires a broad readjustment of context. As noble as your attempts were to get through to Tao, you just didn't speak his language and subconsciously you knew this. You went into panic mode 
when you would try to strike up a conversation and he answered you in borderline computer code, or when your polite laughter was met with nothing from him, but in trying to say the right thing to him and ask the right questions, you came up more and more empty. It's telling that when you interviewed this spokesman for a generation that can't connect, you had trouble connecting. So there you go. That's some listener feedback. And, uh, you know, I don't know. It's a lot to process for me. People are all over the map. Uh, I like Tao. I like his work. I consider him a friend. And uh, I've always thought he's a very talented writer. And uh, moreover, uh, a, f- a funny writer and a very uh, distinct voice, clearly. You know, a lot of writers can, can tend to bleed together out there, but he, he's always stood out, and he makes me laugh. And so I feel like a lot of people miss how funny he is and how sincere. <laughs> um, you know, I don't, I, I don't understand angry responses most of the time when it comes to the arts, but I, I particularly in this, you know, with this in mind, I don't understand the angry response that Tao generates, uh, so much of the time. I really don't, but I mean, I, the fact that he does generate, uh, such emotional responses across the spectrum in people, I think is indicative of the fact that he's, uh, making interesting literature. And, yeah, I mean, uh, point taken, he's not the easiest person to interview. You know, some people are talkers. I guess I'm a talker. And, you know, he's not a talker in the, you know, radio sense or whatever, but uh, I don't mind. I don't think that matters. You know, he is who he is. And um, for me, you know, this show and any kind of interview show, it's not about the delivery per se. Uh, you know, from my perspective, as long as the person I'm trying to talk with, whether it's, uh, Sam Pink or Tao or, uh, George Saunders, it doesn't matter. George Saunders, any of these people that have been on the show, um, you know, everyone's obviously got their own personality. And as long as a person tries to talk with me in an honest way, that's it. That's all I care about. And I certainly think Tao did that. And then the uh, self-promotional stuff that tends to anger some people out there, you know, the, the self-promotional stuff that he does, the, uh, the various stunts that he's pulled over the years. Uh, you know, I think a lot of the people who are bugged by it are writers. And uh, I don't know. It doesn't bother me. And I don't know a writer out there who isn't trying to promote their work one way or the other. And, you know, Tao, uh, he may be unorthodox in his approach. Uh, he may be particularly hardworking and persistent about it, uh, but he also happens to be effective, which is unusual. And I think it's part of the problem for people. <laughs> you know, the fact that he's actually able to get people's attention and that he has a readership that is uh, enthusiastic and uh, you know, even evangelical about his work. And I think there's just a lot of jealousy over that as I see it, uh, on the internet. 
So I don't know. That's my two cents. I enjoyed having him on the program. I'm glad he came. And I'm, uh, you know, the fact of the matter is that the people listening to this show, you know, a lot of people write to me and wonder why I have uh, a lot of outlet authors on this show or why, you know, there's so much talk about that. I think it's a genuine thing that's exciting in literature right now. And, uh, the, the, the fact of the matter is that that's my audience or that's a big part of my audience. There are a lot of people who listen to this show who are interested in it and I'm interested in it. So I don't know what else to say. I'm interested in other stuff too, but there are so few genuine movements in literature that really feel like they have definition and are saying something uh, new and interesting and that, you know, there's like a body of work that's being produced by a variety of different voices. And, you know, categories are, are bothersome. But they're sort of like a necessary evil. So, I mean, it's like alt-lit, internet literature, writing that responds to the information, you know, whatever the hell you want to call it. That's not the point to me. It's just, you know, an, an interest in this community and an interest in the culture that's springing up. You know, where people are creating a language and they're speaking to one another and there's like a dialogue between works and there's mimicry in the best sense of the word. So, I don't know. I hope that sheds some light. And uh, I want to thank everybody once again for sending in emails, tweets, and so on and so forth. I do appreciate it. Uh, don't forget, you can follow the program on Twitter at Other People Pod. And once again, the email address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Julie Sarkissian. Her debut novel, Dear Lucy, is now available in hardcover from Simon & Schuster. It's great to have her here and to get a chance to talk with her as she makes her entrance onto the main stage. Here she is, folks, the lovely and talented Julie Sarkissian. Are you asking me that now? Or? Uh, I'm asking you. Uh, oh, I'm in my apartment in Brooklyn. You are? Okay. And, and just in a room, in the main room? Where are you? 
Uh, well, it's a super small apartment, like 450 square feet, though there is a separate bedroom. But I'm in just, like, the main part. It's, you know, it's not, like, that many rooms. There's yeah. basically two. What part, of, what part of Brooklyn are you in? Brooklyn Heights. Oh, yeah, that's nice. I like that part. Yeah, yep. it is nice. There's it's like, very spooky. I, I have some friends who live there, and there's like that little walkway and the tree line. It's it's mm-hmm. it's it's sort of like what I imagine because I've never lived out there. It's sort of what I imagine Brooklyn to be like, you know, because I, that's what you see in the movies. I feel like Brooklyn Heights is what they film in the movies. Oh yeah, they're always filming stuff around here. So yeah. Uh, do you ever see Paul? Right. Doesn't Paul Giamatti live in that neighborhood? Yes, I see him all the time. Do you? I was just at. Yeah, I was, like, meeting my fiancé at this sushi restaurant, which was totally empty, and then I saw, like, somebody's elbow, and I was like, oh, that must be James. So I, like, ran up to him, and it was Paul Giamatti. It was Paul, G- it was Paul Giamatti's elbow. Yeah. Yeah, it was. Did you have, like, an exchange with him, or was it just like a... No, God, no, I, like, recoiled of it, you know. You don't want to go there. No, I'm so intimidated by celebrities. Like, I work at a restaurant, so... Um, I hate whenever famous people come in. It's really stressful. Well, who, wait, who have you waited on? Um, I just waited on, um, Maria Shriver. That was terrible. Oh, wow. I mean, she was lovely. They were all nice, but it was, you know, like your palms are sweating, you're shaking, and you know, (laughs) it's just a recipe to like definitely spill coffee on her. So have you, have you ever done that? Have you ever spilled on a celebrity? Um, God, well... Josh Hartnett used to come in all the time because he was a a really good friend of someone who worked with me there. And I think I probably spilled some stuff on him. Um, But that was, you know, he forgave me. He wasn't holding me to the same standards that another celebrity would hold their waiter to. You picked the right one. And I think it's kind of charming that you admit that you get nervous around celebrities because I feel like, you know, especially when you live in a place like Brooklyn or you live in a place like Los Angeles where there's lots of them, it's sort of... Uh, you know, the norm for people to act like it's no big deal and like whatever. And do you know what I'm saying? It's like kind of too cool. Oh yeah, definitely. Too, too cool to be bothered. But like, I've been in I've been in a room, you know, with celebrities before, and the temperature does change a little bit. You know, people notice it. Oh my god, yeah. And they're so much like skinnier and like better looking and like better dressed. Like when you're looking at a fashion magazine or like a celebrity magazine, every single person in it, you know is super skinny and super well-dressed and super gorgeous. But, like, out of context, it's, like, it's startling just how sort of, like, polished and, like, perfect and otherworldly they look. So so who have you – so, who, like, what's the most – Including Paul Giamatti. He's just so toned <laughs> and so gorgeous. I was going to say, you know, he's he's known for um, David Letterman was, like, the nicest ever. I tripped on him, but I didn't spill on him. But he has, like, super long legs. And he's really tall, and um, he was, like, kind of crunched in our, like, tiny little booth, tiny banquettes at the restaurant. And um, I, like, tripped over his super long legs and was, like, so embarrassed and stuttering. And but he was nice and made made a joke and left a huge tip. So oh, he did. Okay. he's good in my book. Okay. So wait, may I ask what restaurant this is? Or, like, is this in Manhattan or is this in Brooklyn? Oh, yeah. Um, it's in, in Manhattan. It's called Edwards. It is a little sort of faux French American bistro that's been around for a long time in restaurant years, but 
that's about, let's see, it's been Edward since 2001. And I've worked there for a really long time since I was 20 years old, and I'm 29 now. Um, I was actually still in college at Princeton in undergrad when I started working there during the summer in between my junior and senior year. So it's been like my whole 20s, which is like terrifying to think about, but... But hey, but now you have, um, now you have a book to show for it, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I sort of I do think of it that way. It's sort of like it, they're inextricable. The whole like Edwards Restaurant, Starving Artist, and and the book are really inextricable from each other in my mind. I mean, that's a hundred percent why I was working in the restaurant. You know. Well, and I feel, but I mean, I got it. Ten years at a restaurant. I feel like you could write a book about the restaurant. That's a lot because like a lot. Ha- yeah. A lot happens, or maybe not a lot happens. But I have a buddy who's been a waiter. Like literally has worked in restaurants since he was fourteen, and we're almost yeah. 40, we're almost forty now. <laughs> and, oh wow! Yeah, he, he's still going, but I mean, like he's got stories, and he's you know, there's like a million different like subplots and dramas, and lots of people hook up at restaurants too. Like there's a lot of that. Oh, totally. You know? And I think we'll probably. I'm sure in LA too. This might even be more so, but. Um, I feel like everyone I work with is like so good looking because they're all, you know, wannabe or not wannabe. It's a bad way to put it, but aspiring, <laughs> you know, actors and musicians and like even models. So, um, so yeah, there's lots of that. Yeah, it's like sort of sexually charged in a way. And even though it's like can be really sort of demeaning work, I think there is something just like the least bit sort of glamorous about about working in a restaurant. Well, and you know, I never, I've never waited tables per se, but I was, a, I was a pizza delivery guy, which is probably like a few. <laughs> I was, it's probably a few, a few notches below uh, waiting tables at like a, a, a nice restaurant in Manhattan. But uh, I always like said to myself because it's, it's still among my favorite jobs I've ever had. In fact, it might be. That's so I, funny. I, I might like it better than writing. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I think that uh, I think there's something to be said for like bringing people a meal. Like I think that's a oh my gosh yes you know bring them some good food it makes them happy and there's I think there I don't know that always gave me like a good feeling for some reason like just showing up at somebody's door with a pizza they're happy to see you well it also seems like you got out in time you know I think that I was really I really wanted to work in restaurants um, I mean the reason I did it was so it would provide me the time and flexibility to write but. Um, you know, I started when I was in college. I actually worked in undergrad at a restaurant, and I didn't have to, but I, I really wanted to. I was just, like, really attracted to that world. We never went out to eat as a kid, and so I don't know. I think there is something appealing about it, but I don't know. Ten years in the business can kind of, like, that's not really how I feel when I clock in anymore. Like, <laughs> I'm so grateful I get to give someone a hot meal. <laughs> Well, yeah, you know. Well, I might be going back. Who knows? I could see there could be pizza. Yeah. There could be pizza if this this podcast doesn't take off some more. There could be pizza delivery in my yeah. future. Um, and I That's should so I should funny. say too, I didn't get to uh, rejoin. Is that the way? Is that a word? I didn't get to add that I have a David Letterman story. Oh, what is it? Well, I mean, you realize he's from Indiana. I'm from Indiana. Uh, he grew up and went to high school, like you know, a stone's throw from where I grew up and went to high school. And he is huge into car racing. So when I was a kid in junior high and we would go to the Indy 500, he's always there every year. I think he has a car in the race. And Oh, my gosh. I mean, I worshipped David Letterman uh, as a kid. Like, we still do. I mean, there's, like, you know, he's really, truly, like, meaningful to me. 
because you know just growing up watching late night and um i don't know you know he's from indiana and, and all the rest but yeah. i saw him and it was like seeing jesus you know my friend and i and so it was like i've got to get an autograph and so like i borrowed a piece of paper and a pen from a reporter because there was like a cluster of people around him and i sort of just mm -hmm. you, know, you know this is like what you can do when you're a kid but i cut through the crowd and i was like excuse me sir like mr letterman may i please have your autograph and he asked me what my name was and I told him my name was Brad and then he asked me to spell it and he was <laughs> he was joking he he was joking and I didn't realize he was joking cuz I was too amped up and so I spelled my name and then everyone kind of laughed at me and I you know it was sort of a nice moment he made fun of me That's sweet Yeah but he um, was but he was Yeah, he was Go Yeah, ahead. so he was he was a super nice Oh yeah, sorry. Yeah. He was a good one. He was a nice one. Well, but I've, I've heard he's an but, asshole. Like, people talk about, and you read about, like, how he is, like, you know, on the show. Oh, yeah. And it's like all these I forgot things. about all that. Yeah. It's like he's, like, cloistered, and there's no one can talk to him. And, you know, I don't know how much of that's true. Yeah. And then, like, all of that sort of, like, real dramatic stuff with, like, the affair. And I don't know. I don't know if having an affair means you're an asshole, per se. But, um,. Yeah. Well, who did I have? No, I, just, I, had, well, I, had, I had somebody on this show who worked on, on his show as an intern or something and was, you know, swore that he was really, and she as well said he was really nice. Uh, though, you know, let's just, you know, he was very nice to you. He was very nice to a child, but he's very nice to young women. Let's just, let's just get that out there. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know. If, I don't know if he would have been as nice. Let's just put it this way. I don't know if he would have been as nice to me if I would have tripped on him. You know what I'm saying? Tripped over his long legs. Yeah. So... But anyway, she swore that he was very nice, and she also said, I believe, if I'm recalling this correctly, um, that he was extremely charismatic. You know, they're like there truly, mm. like there truly was like something about his presence. Oh God, yeah, I re I felt that way too. I, I mean, it sounds silly, but it, I mean, he was just sitting there. You know, couldn't have been more sort of like nonchalant, but it was definitely that sort of mag magnetism and just inherent whatever it is i mean that was one case that was definitely true but yeah. there's so many people that aren't um where you just like you don't get it at all you're like you need like get on stage like get on screen because the camera is who loves you you know like my eyes don't see it um, like so, yeah. So who's but, let, who's let you down? Have you ever waited on someone famous and been like, really, <laughs> like you? Yeah, I'm kind of like afraid to say, but I'm, I probably don't listen. But like, like, how about, um, how about initials? We can like play a guessing game or something. Um, well, I'll just go ahead and say Kevin Spacey has, it, you know, sometimes was a little short, I suppose. You can say. What do you mean? Um, like physically, I, physically short, or like verbally? Short? No, no, just like a little, like you know, he's not in it to like to make any friends. Like he just wants his quick meal, and that's and that's totally fine. Like never rude, but like I'm a huge fan of his, and so you know, you come in it with like weird expectations, which is unfair. Like unfair to them. It's not. You know, they're not walking the red carpet. They're not there for their fans. They just, like, want their food. But it was a little, like, okay. Yeah. Kevin Spacey doesn't want to be my friend. <laughs> that's, that's, yeah, I that's guess I can't be that surprised. But, you know, I kind of feel that way with just about anyone. Like, I hate it when when people are just, like, they don't give a shit. They don't care. They don't want to yeah. be nice. You know? Yeah. I yeah. Get... No, I mean, 
So I think that's the way to put it. Like, definitely not rude by any means. Just doesn't want to be nice. Yeah. Or maybe and, or maybe, you know. maybe you caught him on a bad day. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Yep. So. We can pretend. Okay. Well, so, okay, 10 years waiting tables and all the while working on a, uh, a book and working on your writing and going through uh, what I would presume you would call your apprentice years or whatever. Uh, so like, and then you started at Princeton, you went to Princeton for undergrad and then you've yep. spent a decade at this. So tell me a little bit about those years. Like, did you ever find yourself like, I don't know, crushed with depression and doubt that this was ever going to happen for you? Oh yeah, totally. I mean like the whole time sort of, um, that like there was not a ton of, of like, cohesion with the different like parts of my mind like there's there's a there's a little flame of faith that I guess never totally goes out because otherwise you really would just quit but um you know a lot of times you feel like the whole rest of yourself is doing everything it can to convince you that you're crazy um especially me being like a very type a person I mean that's how I ended up at Princeton in the beginning and you know, I liked the prescribed routes to, like, success or achievement. I'd sort of thrived on those systems since I was a kid. So for me, in terms of just, like, the way I operate, it was, like, incredibly terrifying. Um, and, yeah. Yeah, that's really, that's really, that's really the- true. That's interesting that you that you couch it that way because I think that's true. Like, if you're somebody who really responded well to, and I think you put it more elegantly than I will, but whatever phrase you use, like systems, um, like hierarchical systems or systems of achievement that we get in our school system and that we get in, I think, more linear career paths, you know, like I always, especially like to jump into a a field like this is to leap without a net and it's got, it's got like really no structure and you're sort of out on your own rowing a boat uh, on a dark sea, you know, alone. <laughs> uh, yeah, definitely. To, to, and to, I think the like no no net thing is is very like apropos the situation because you know if you don't like I don't know get an agent or sell the book, um, it's not like you in a traditional sense really have like anything quote unquote to show for it. It's not like you went to law school and now you have the bar. So, you know, okay, maybe I didn't get, like, the absolute number one, like, dream come true job I wanted. But there's, like, something that you, you know, collected along the way that's useful. Like, what could you say about, like, the last nine years of my life if I hadn't been able to publish the book? I mean, a lot of soul searching for whatever that's worth. (laughs) But, um you know, it's not like, I mean, I guess I could teach, but even like teaching to me seems like so competitive. I don't even know without the book if I would even be like a viable candidate to like be a teacher. So I was totally like fearful and like sort of still am of just like being like a failure with a capital S, like again, whatever that means in a way that's like a very subjective thing to say, but, um, so, yep, nine years of self-doubt and terror. <laughs> did you? What was the darkest moment? Like, when, did you ever, like, quit or did you ever, like, say to yourself, fuck it, I'm going to law school? Or, like, did you ever, like, call your parents on the phone and weep? <laughs> uh, well, I, oh, my God. Yeah, definitely. But, like, even though this has taken me a really, like, 
this has been a long, slow journey. There was sort of like a tiny bit of momentum, at least the whole time. Like I sort of got my book together, you know, within like two years of finishing graduate school or one year out of finishing graduate school. Like I managed to find an agent. Like we were able to sell it. Like there wasn't any moment where it was like, all right, this is the sign that this isn't going to happen. Like let's move to plan B. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think, like, one of the saddest times I was, was, like, the first rejection from just, like, an editor or a publisher when my agent sent out the book. And she sent me the, like, rejection letter because she thought it was, like, a nice pass. Um, you know, and I just, like, broke down and sobbed. Like, I just, it was, like, completely overwhelming trying to process <laughs> that information, um, so that was probably, and then I just like got in the bath and like cried and cried and cried. So like I couldn't cry anymore. And then you're, I don't know, got up and kept waiting. <laughs> what are you going to do? There is a moment. Like in, <laughs> yeah, what are you going to do? Well, you know, I feel that way. Like, uh, uh, you know, especially once you have a kid and I don't want to differentiate too much, but it does change things a little bit in the sense that I feel less of, I feel like wallowing is a luxury that I really can't afford anymore. <laughs> Uh, because you have a you, know, awesome. you have a child, you're like, oh, okay, well, I've got to get up and go, and you have to set an example. When I didn't have a child, I think I le- I allowed myself a little bit more freedom, you know, in that regard. To wallow. Yeah, but I, even then, That's even great. then, even without a kid, there is that moment that you reach where you sort of you're sort of spent, like you've done all the wallowing you can do, and then it's like, okay, I survived, and here we go. And it sounds sort of. Uh, dark perhaps to say this but i feel like it's the kind of thing you get better at like you get better oh at, my god at taking the rejection the more of it that you get <laughs> oh yeah it's totally true there's so many funny little firsts where you're like just in your like they're so abstract that it's trying to imagine like losing your virginity after you like first hold hands with somebody or something like when you're a child like you know it's out there and like you know it's this huge thing but like what specifically it actually like is like you could never ever imagine and that was sort of like the rejection or even the selling of the book or just so many moments that like you know just sort of knock you over emotionally and you don't really have a context for them and now I'm like bring it on I could give a crap like I'm getting rejected left and right you know I mean publicity is just another set of like getting rejected every single day. <laughs> right, right. I don't know. No, I feel so, the same way. I, it makes me think of like me trying to lose my virginity and, and how many times I got rejected in that process. It was, it was a good preparation <laughs> for a literary career. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so, That's really funny. So I want to ask you, because you, you alluded to this earlier, uh, I want to I ask you about your childhood and I want to ask you about this type, you know, this type A personality that you profess to have. Uh, you know, so when you say you're type A and you're a little kid growing up in California, you said, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Southern California? Yeah, Majestic Canyon. It's this weird sort of like totally anomalous, like idiosyncratic for the area, part of Orange County. That's a community of 500 people, um, like really sort of like a, a sort of counterculture as Orange County gets. Um, my parents were hippies, and um, yeah, so I grew up without a television. I was potty trained on an outhouse in this like sort of isolated community. Holy shit! Is um, that is that over by Saddleback? That mountain? Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
I think I've yep. dri- I think I've driven through there because I you know I wanted to go hike Saddleback one day. Yeah. This was a long time ago, but I had my dog with me and like we drove up there and I didn't get to the base of the mountain until too late. So I couldn't do the whole thing, but I was, oh, no. I was driving through the Canyon and I think I passed through there and I was like, wait a minute, I'm in orange County. Like, I feel like I'm, yes. suddenly, like I'm suddenly in like Topanga Canyon or something. Like I always describe it as Topanga Canyon, like to people that are sort like, don't know, obviously the Canyon, but are familiar with Southern California at large. Like I think of it as sort of Topanga Canyon, but part, like, probably minus a big glamour. Right. Like, um, like, if, like let's, let's put it this way. Like if the Manson, if the Manson family had lived in Orange County, they would have lived in your neighborhood. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, oh yeah, absolutely. The stories that come out of that. T- okay. So there's a few canyons that are lumped together and called the canyons and they are Tribuco Canyon, Modesto Canyon, Silverado Canyon, um, and Silverado has about 1,500 people. Majeska has about 500. I don't know how many Tribuco has, but, yeah, they don't add up to much. But, you know, people go out there to sort of, I think it, it attracts, like, very, like, right-wing people who want, you know, just, this, like, are so into their, like, civil liberties and they want to have, I don't know, like, shoot things or <laughs> I was going to say, I was going to say guns. Yeah, I was going to say guns. Yeah. Um, and then very left, you know, very left of center too. So it's an interesting mix of people with like strong feelings about their lifestyle. Well, no, you know, that's interesting that you say that because I, I lived in Colorado for eight years, uh, went to college there and then lived there afterwards for a few years. And, you know, the mountains draw those kinds of people. There are a lot of like super right wing libertarian types who live up in the hills. And then there's also like the... Greenpeace lefties, you know, who live up there, and it's interesting. It's an interesting. And they both mix. feel like they have a claim. Yeah, it's really interesting. My parents, especially my dad, like very involved in the local politics there and trying to keep the canyon rural because you know Orange County is so pro development. And um, and when we lived there, I think that most of the residents were sort of a little more pro rural, keep it rural, and now. Um, I guess just as South County becomes more developed, it's sort of encroached on the canyons, and there's just constant debate about, you know, the land use and what's best for, I don't know, the canyons, and so. So okay, so how does a, how does a, how does a Type A Princeton graduate emerge from? Like I'm, you're Type A. Like I would expect you to be the opposite. Like you're you're peeing in an outhouse and you have horses and stuff. Like I would expect you to be. But I don't know, not type A. What, yeah, what's so, the, I mean, what's the I opposite think of type A? Type, you know. Type B. Yeah. <laughs> type A. But um, no, I just, from a super early age, I love color coordinating, color coordinating. I love putting, like, objects in, like, descending or ascending order of height. Like, I just loved organization. I think it was, like, a coping mechanism to some degree. I think anyone that sort of, tends towards perfectionism. Um, it's not It's not necessarily out of, like, their love for organization. It's just a way to organize the world and feel in control. Um, and my house was actually very in control, so it wasn't as if I was, like, escaping a chaotic childhood. But my mom was, like, a bit distant emotionally, um, I think maybe was part of it. But I just threw myself into like 
learning and music and just like anything where I could see, like, I don't know, just achieve, I was like attracted to and anything I was bad at, I would quit. So that's also, that's like the negative side of the perfectionist. So you know, wait, they won't do anything they're not good at. What, when you say music, you mean you, like you were an instrumentalist? Oh, I was like, a, I mean, I was, I was not that good, but yeah, I played the piano since I was like five years old. I like begged to take piano lessons. Um, I was always like begging to take like really nerdy, dorky, like extracurricular classes and like painting lessons and then eventually writing lessons. Um, but I know like becoming a writer was sort of like that part of myself's worst fear. So there's definitely like a part of my like personality that's like really angry that, um, we've sort of chosen this path. Um, yeah. So, well, you so talk, how, yeah, I, so, like you talk about yourself in the first person plural, like we've chosen this path. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm like, dad was telling me that sort of in like new agey times, maybe like 10 years ago or 20 years ago, and even before that, but this idea that psychologists were really sort of drawn to this idea of the true self, that like if you took away your, you know, your fear and you took away um, society's pressure on you, that like you would be like one true person. Um, and my dad, who has a background in psychology, was telling me that now psychologists sort of think of the self as a committee and so when you feel really torn and you feel like you're arguing against yourself that actually there's a lot of truth to that so maybe that's where the lead comes from yeah well yeah no i mean i get it i feel like there's multiple me's you know multiple voices yeah and i guess it's maybe common for i mean if you're a writer and you're especially if you're a writer of fiction to have multiple voices in your head is probably good for business yeah <laughs> So uh, I, you said your your father's into psychology or psychiatry, and then uh, what did your what was your mom doing? Was she working or? So let's see. She worked part time most of my life teaching. She had she was in sort of academia in the very beginning of her career, getting a master's in English and linguistics, I think, from USC, and my dad was getting his doctorate in psychology from Fuller Seminary, um, and then they both sort of, at the, like, at the same time, made this, well, at the same time they were married, I guess they had to, but they decided to sort of, like, move into this canyon, Altadena Canyon, um, and, like, leave their career paths and, like, start anew, and... Um, so they both ended up in like lines of work that really hadn't been what they imagined themselves doing and sort of wasn't like their dream. And so my mom ended up like using her master's degree to like teach community college, which like she actually ended up really, really loving that. But she always sort of imagined herself as like a proper academic. So she taught, I think like every Friday she taught for like most of my young life. So she was like around most of the time. And then my dad was in sales, and he was. They were. They were both like around in the canyon, in the the hippie canyon. And so, like, what, like long hair, like what your parents like? Are they were they doing drugs or anything, or was it kind of just more of like an agrarian hippie? They're like boring hippies, like agrarian. Yeah, that's a better way to describe it. I mean, yeah, I think like um, I don't think my mom ever did drugs. Like my, my dad, I'm sure. Well, like definitely, like did some drugs back in the day. Like, he dropped out of school over gay rights, so he was a bit of an active, had a bit of an activism, like, spirit in him. Like, 
went barefoot, but I mean, nothing that extreme. But I think like they've sort of, would they, they really like believe in the lifestyle that they've adopted for themselves. Like they, we, we never had plastic bags even in the eighties when it was acceptable to like have plastic bags from the supermarket. We always brought our own bags. We grew our own fruits and vegetables. You know, we didn't have a TV. So we'll see. Okay. I always have this argument with people or I, I don't always have it, but when, whenever this kind of stuff comes up, I always argue that like, you know, the hippies, you can, they get made fun of a lot. It's easy to sort of like wag a finger at them or roll your eyes, but like they have good instincts. Like you look at the, especially like the green hippies, like you look at what the green hippies were saying in like 1978 and like yeah. they were talking about climate change and all this stuff, like, you know, 30, 40 years ago or even before then. And it's like, you know, uh, we would be wise. They appreciate Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that, that was sort of more their speed, like nothing. If you met them, I mean, other than the fact they kind of, my mom described her look as aging hippie. So they kind of look the part, I suppose, but you wouldn't be like shocked by their like wild notions. They have the same ideas that they had in the seventies, sort of like what you were just saying. Like now it's not radical at all. I suppose back then it seemed a bit more radical. Well, but that's a, the, the fact that those those ideas have become more normalized might just be a testament to the quality of their ideas, right? Yeah. My friends, like, growing up in Orange County, I always wanted to, like, live in a track house. And, like, I loved the, like, gated communities that had the community pool. And, like, I wanted nothing more than that. And um, the, my friends always got a kick out of coming to the canyon because we had the creek and we went hiking. And my mom would grow all these fruits and vegetables. And my friends now, I'm still friends with a lot of my friends from home. And they say, like, your parents, like, they, you know, all their notions are so popular now. Isn't that funny? Like, your parents are trendy now. That's not, doesn't quite describe it, but it is funny <laughs> to see that. Well, it, you know, and it's funny to hear you talk about how, like, the grass was greener for you in, like, you know, gated communities, like these track houses and whatnot, because I grew up in, like, a really conservative, like, Indianapolis suburb. And there were like man-made ponds that were like stocked with like, oh, sun. Yeah, I would have loved that. Yeah, like that. It was like, but you know, and it was next to a pig farm. I mean, it was just, it was very like bucolic in a way, but also like the neighborhood was brand new. There were hardly any trees because they hadn't really grown in yet. Uh, mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? It was like one of those neighborhoods. Nice houses, you know, everything was sort of brand new, but it wasn't like there but was just no... that brand new construction. Yeah, but no soul, like zero soul. Uh, it's gotten a little bit more now just because of, uh, you know, as a function of time. But, you know, if, if mm-hmm. you would have told me when I was like 17, 18 years old, you know, would you like to live in a canyon with like parents that were more hippie? I would have been like, oh my God, like, yes, like, please. But whenever I, (laughs) but then you talk to people who had hippie parents and like a lot of the time what they wanted is like more structure and like a track house. So it's like the grass is always. Oh yeah. Oh, definitely. And like, as my therapist puts it, like children are just so sensitive to difference. And like, we were different, you know, Um, not as different as like, my character like book is like you know maybe me and my brother as individuals like were well adjusted um kids like well adjusted happy kids but those differences and just even the way my parents looked or like why my mom wouldn't wear makeup and in one of the most superficial places in the world probably you know southern california so um, yeah, like she would always make homemade cakes for my birthday and I always wanted a store-bought cake. And of course now I'm like an avid baker and can never, can, can't even imagine buying a store-bought cake. But 
Like, yeah. So, like, have you come around? Like, are you now at the point where you look back and are, like, more appreciative? I mean, obviously, you're, you're more appreciative than you were when you were an adolescent. But, you know, like, how, how full circle have you come when you look back at the way you were raised and the decisions your parents made? Like, do you feel like repeating some of those decisions? Or do you feel like you want to take things in a different direction with your life, you know, due to experiences? Yeah, I don't know. That's such a good – I mean, that's an amazing question. I don't really know, like – if maybe it's like the committee, the committee thing plays into it, you know, like some people on the committee say, yes, absolutely. Because like they believed in their values so strongly. And, you know, one of the reasons we didn't have a television wasn't necessarily because of the opportunity cost. Like it wasn't like, you know, we want you to be outside playing and reading. It was that my mom thought that the images of consumerism and, and not even just the commercials, but just the way that like there was no representation of what she thought was like a modest, normal way to live. Like that it would make us think that we, I don't know, like didn't have enough just based on like the messages that we were getting. Um, no, that, so, I mean, that's like that's a, smart. That's smart. I mean, you know, I don't, you can, I mean, listen, if you're, if you're well adjusted enough and you have enough, uh, if you have your bearings properly, you can watch anything or look at anything you have to be fairly strong, though, because I feel like I have my bearings, but I can read a magazine and or read like Vanity Fair and some celebrity profile or whatever. And you're just like, yeah. oh, my God, I'm failing. And these people have everything, yes. you know, and that's what it's designed to do. And it's like, you know, you have to really have your wits about you and be really conscious when you're reading that stuff or watching that stuff to avoid getting sucked into that mental game. You know, no, I agree. But then I think that, like, my mom was like actually the least sort of stable of like all of us um and she wouldn't mind me saying that like I talk about her a lot and like her sort of past and like what she went through she went through trauma as a child um what do you mean really has like she was abused as a child like from a very early age um it stopped like before she hit um like puberty but she totally repressed it in a very like classic way um and then also in a very classic way it presented itself in her early 20s and that was sort of when they like my parents both like left left academia and said look like our health as a couple and like Sarah your health as an individual is our priority um and so I actually think that like the not having a television thing was like was protecting me and David from yeah from those consumer images of you know all that, but I think it was really protecting her too. So right, well you know I, yeah. I mean we have like Apple TV, but like I got rid of cable and I haven't missed it at all. I mean we're at that kind of we're at a kind of pivot point, so it's not as radical as it might sound because I think I think that exactly a lot of, yeah. pe- a lot of people are going to be making that jump and just getting their TV from the internet soon. But uh, but I even think just like the economy changing so much like. It's hard to, like, and free get, like, everything from, I don't know, it's, like, it really takes me, like, at least or somebody growing up, like, where I grew up, um, or a lot of exposition to, like, explain how strange it was then. Like, it's cool that it's not going to be strange anymore to just be like, yeah, we don't have cable. Like, who wants to watch that junk forced down your throat? Right. But in the 80s, that's what everyone was doing. Yeah, like uh, yeah, and you know, you didn't have MTV back when MTV was like actually something. Cool. They played yeah. Music videos, but I don't know. It sounds sort of dreamy to me, and you know, like always sunny, and like you know, you you you, I guess, have to have some sort of frame of reference for Orange County, which I think most people listening will have at least some 
passing idea of, but it's a very religious place. So yeah. was that a factor in your childhood? Um, it's interesting. A lot of people have brought that up, and there's like this strange religious element in my book. Um, and that was another thing where I was just aware that we were different. You know, like my dad, I guess, would call himself an agnostic, but my mom was purely an atheist. And they, that was another thing about their past is they actually met um, through church um, in Santa Barbara, and they got married super young. My mom was 18. My dad was 22. And then they both left the church. So that was like this funny thing where it was like everyone around me was so religious. Um, and like I had conversations with my friends when I was like beginning, like very young elementary school through high school about how I was going to hell like all the time. But it didn't didn't strike me as odd. Um, but I honestly knew no other atheists, like not even kidding. Um now a lot of my friends' opinions now that we've like we've grown up and left home, like, you know, now much more runs the gamut. But um yeah, it was sort of like me against like everyone else I know. <laughs> so that was strange, but it that weirdly didn't feel strange at the time. I don't know why, but so, but it didn't affect because like, I was gonna I was gonna ask you about how you were I mean, we've talked about how you sort of were academically and organizationally. Um which by the way, are you a Virgo? I'm I'm just curious, like no, I'm a Leo, so that oh, yeah. part doesn't really factor. Where, like, well, Leo, what? Because I'm a Leo nice too. Time. What's your day? August first. Oh, we have the same birthday. Are you serious? I uh, shit you not. We have the same birthday. That is so bizarre. Yeah, it's a good birthday. I like it. Wow, I think it's great. Um, but I'm not as organized. But like, my daughter is a Virgo, and they're supposed to be hyper organized. So, like, my wife and I are sort of hoping that uh, you know she gets that, so she, <laughs> so she can clean our house. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Especially when you get older, and like you literally you can't do it yourself. You'll have the you'll have an expert. Yeah, that's what we get need. all your affairs in order. Um. So okay. So socially, you know, you're Type A. You're sort of reacting against the you know Bohemian upbringing. You know, you're this idyllic bohemian upbringing. You're you're rebelling against that, and uh, what what did it do to you socially? And you're also like a hyper achiever. So, were you really good socially, or were you somebody who had a hard time making friends? It doesn't sound like it. Um, well, I was really shy when I was young, like, um, which I think like are kids just shy? I don't know. I think maybe a lot of children have memories of like being shy but I have really painful memories of being shy um but I had friends um in the canyon but a lot of I don't know the canyon was just a such strange place and I was like you know I call myself like a nerd like I definitely felt like super nerdy in the canyon because I just like loved books and loved school and, like, wanted, you know, allegedly I said I wanted to, like, go to Princeton when I was, like, in elementary school. But I don't know why I would have said that because, like, we weren't Ivy League people. So I don't know where I would have gotten that notion. But so I was sort of, like, made fun of for being, like, a nerd. But I, I guess I sort of took it in stride. And I was kind of like, yeah, that's pretty true. You know, I can't really argue against that. But um, it was a bit more of, like, a tough crowd because of this, like, strange bohemian alternative. Like, my parents were very much, like, dinner on the table at, like, 6 o'clock every night, and then we do homework. But there were lots of parents who had way more, like, laissez-faire parenting styles. Um, so I guess we were sort of, like, I was kind of just viewed as, like, a goody-two-shoes. 
But then when I went to middle school, I was in all honors classes and it was like a dream come true. It was like heaven for me. Um, just surrounded by all these like fellow nerds and, you know, feeling competitive actually felt good because I really hadn't had much like competition in elementary school. There was only 12 other people in my class. So, um, so yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't hard for me to make friends with those people. They were like my people. So, yeah, I feel like and you, then we you like I, I like the, I like the phrase "nerd from the canyon" for some reason. I don't know if that's like a potential. <laughs> that could be like the title of your memoir, you know, or something. something. Oh my god, that's awesome! Uh, okay, so yeah. let's get you to Princeton. Uh, you you know, mm, you, you, you the lay, dark years were they? Mm-hmm. Okay, the, tell me so about dark. It. what happened. Well, in high school, I was this overachiever. I was also the president of the whole school. I was like on homecoming core, I was like the most, I was like blissfully happy. I felt like just, I don't know. I felt like if like my life had ended then, I would have like never really known like actual hardship or suffering, right. which is great. Um, do you ever, but do you, I was do you ever like, worry that you peaked? <laughs> yes. Oh my God. Yeah. Well, I certainly did for my whole time at Princeton. But now that I'm like, I have my book, which is like my new, like, gives I sound so cheesy but it gives my life like new meaning like I just I'm so glad I stuck with it but so I went from feeling I mean so many people have this experience I in no way want to seem like I think I'm like special or unique that I went through this but I really felt like going from sort of this like pinnacle place of friendship achievement um I don't know, like I'd just fallen in love for the first time. Um, what, in, you high, know, in high school? And I, yeah. Okay. Like I met this, yeah, um, yeah Brian Bassel, he was the president of his high school and I was the president of my high school. Oh, it's a, poli- and, like, it's a political romance. It's a political romance. Um, and the goodbyes I had to say to my friends, I was like wildly attached to my friends and still am and have terrible separation anxiety. Like the goodbyes that I had to say were still in my mind thinking about them make me shudder. Um, and like I left all that behind and like showed up at Princeton and like for practically four years, I had no idea what I was fucking doing. Like I had just lost all bearing. Um, so in a funny way, that's actually why I ended up working at that restaurant. <laughs> wow. I was like, what was I, it? What I, was I, it? Was it like, were you just cloistered in the canyon or something? And then like you got to Princeton? I think so. Or was it, or was it this? Let me, let me posit something and you can reject it or accept it. But was it yeah. a situation where you, you know, you had your world so in order and you were a super high achiever within the context of that world and you had kind of mastered it. And then you go to a mm-hmm. place, then you go to a place like Princeton where you're surrounded by all these other people who've mastered their domains, and it's like, mm-hmm. holy shit! Like, how do I fit into this realm now? And it's a lot more. Oh, completely. That was it. Yeah, that was it. I forget what the first option you said was, but it was definitely that. And the funny thing is, is I would try to like describe. So I guess that would be like identity, maybe. So like my identity was just completely no context for my identity. I guess I'd been like defining myself in relation to what I was doing and the kind of grade that I was getting. Um, and, you know, my friends in Orange County, 
friends, do not take any offense to this. But, you know, I was, I was in all the honors classes, but, and so were most of my friends. Among my very best friends, I was definitely the most, like, type A, I guess you'd say, or, like, anal, or, like, like I planned everything. I was the most rigid. I was the most anxious. I got to Princeton. I was like the most laid back person there. <laughs> You're from the canyon, you know. <laughs> yeah, I know. So that I think was weird too. Like I think I was used to being calmed down by the people I was surrounded with. Um, and in this case, like that was impossible because they actually were probably like in a way just like me. Um, but I used to like blame Princeton, like be super negative, but I'm not anymore. It's not, um, it wasn't Princeton's fault. It wasn't Princeton's fault. It was totally my fault. And, like, it's just a weird thing to do to, like, ship a, like, 17-year-old on the other side of the country and, like, assume that, like, they won't miss a beat, you know? Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I mean, it's a big adjustment. You go from Orange County to New Jersey, right? Yeah. So oh, did God. You, I had, did you have any friends? Not really. Like, I didn't have a ton of friends um, until the very end. And it was funny, like... Um, I had a few good friends. I I did. I had a few good friends, but I really, I don't know. I'd be interested to like see what someone would say about me because my, I like my vision of myself then is so skewed with like unhappiness and homesickness, you know? So maybe I wasn't like, didn't come across as a terribly antisocial person, but that's how I felt. Like I felt like completely like I had nothing to sort of like offer anybody like I was dragging myself around um like do, probably did you, depressed did you do well in, did you do well in school um not as well as I had done like I got A's and B's like I think I don't know what my GPA ended up being like over a three five but you know not not like what it was what it used to be yeah um but I did take the reason I went to Princeton in the first place was to take writing classes, and those were amazing. And you know, like what, like the Tony, Tony, Tony Morrison, all that stuff. Yeah, I mean, Tony Morrison. I think the last class he taught was when I was a freshman, so I wouldn't have been able to take it. Um, but I worked in the creative writing office, so I got to deliver her mail. And I loved being in the creative writing office so much. And Joyce Tillis had always been such an important person to me such an important writer um and she was my she was my professor for two semesters she actually blurbed my book um like yeah the, the professors were just so generous and so i mean all's well that ends well i guess yeah yeah i mean no it's interesting did you you didn't do any drugs or anything in college no, I've never done any drugs. See, I think that might be like I, I don't normally recommend this, but I think you you might need to like head out to the desert and uh, <laughs> hallucinate. Or maybe you missed your window. I'm maybe when you were. In I college, think I should have done it. Yes, like that's when I should have done because I was just floundering anyway. Yes, like if you're gonna fly, you should have come out to Boulder where I was, where like everyone was extremely unmotivated. <laughs> And uh, had, like had zero focus, and we're like sort of like uh, strangely proud of it. And we would have, uh... you know, it's funny that probably would have actually been like a better fit, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, there, yeah, I feel like there's maybe some, there seems to be some connectivity between Colorado and California. I don't know. Oh, there definitely is. Yeah, but uh, I don't know. It's interesting to hear you say that. I have this fact because I was a really good student in high school, though. Like my last two years, I sort of faded. But I graduated mm -hmm. high. You know, I graduated high. I did well on my tests or whatever. But then 
you know, my, I just had no interest in school as a mm-hmm. second half of junior year all the way through the end. And so mm-hmm. I, I barely even applied to college. I didn't even want to go. Um, it was sort of like, do I have to like, really, you know, it was like one of those things. And, um, I look back on it and it's like, why didn't I even, I didn't apply to a single Ivy league school. I had all these numbers. That's so funny. Cause you're such a like academic, like now you're like an intellectual, like as a job. So, well, well <laughs> that's generous. <laughs> um, but well, you know. by our like modern terms, I think it's, yeah, I mean, I, comparatively, comparatively, maybe, yeah. but, you know, I don't feel that way. Um, but you know, it's just interesting. So I'm always fascinated to hear how, you know, what the environment was like in, in these like elite academic institutions. Like, do you feel like, I mean, and then think about it this way too. And I don't mean this in, a, in, uh, I don't mean to denigrate at all because I know what it's like to pursue oh, an, an artistic career, but you know, you have a Princeton degree or a degree from Princeton and then you go out and you're waiting tables for 10 years, you know, and like a lot of your, Oh fellow, my God. Yeah. And so a lot of your fellow classmates are, you know, going into like wall street jobs and law firms and mm. it, did that affect you at all and then did you ever say to yourself like i should be getting more out of this degree oh yeah totally um but i was really like i was super cognizant like i didn't like fall into waiting ta- like i fell into waiting tables in college because i wanted something to do and i was just kind of like lonely and like wanted to move my body i i, I don't know but and so I sort of just like fell into it and it sort of took over my life. I, I waited tables 40 hours a week in Princeton, which doesn't make any sense. That wasn't really the case um, post Princeton. I was in graduate school and I was like, all right, like, let's just look at this, like head on. What are your options here? Um, you know, like there just didn't really seem to be another option other than waiting tables in terms of like what you got paid hourly. Um, but yeah, it was, it was hard, you know, like, Sometimes my classmates would come into the restaurant not knowing I worked there and, you know, like really seemed surprised that I would be like their waitress. And, you know, you just, I, I would want to say like, no, I swear I'm working with something else. Like I have big <laughs> dreams, like right. I'm ambitious. But then you're like, that's a disgusting part of me that like feels like I need to defend myself. And I don't know, I have a, I have a lot of like conflicted, you know, and so, you know, I think it's, I do think it's common for people um, in that position of which there's a lot, you know, I, almost everyone I work with went to a great school. Well, so. and you know what, it's just like, and I, I think those conflicted feelings exist for a lot of people, but I think if, you know, in the context of writing, I think a lot of writers feel this way because, um, you know, you're either in process working on something that you have no tangible evidence of in a way that makes sense mm-hmm. to people. Uh, or you're not making any money at it, and and there are people who are making lots of money, and that's the way that they measure you, or that's the way you feel they measure you, and so, you know, it gets frustrating. And I've certainly, oh yeah, you know, especially when you're surrounded by all these people who are like on different trajectories and have different jobs that provide different things, and it's you know, it gets to be difficult to navigate. And then you know, all of that stuff aside you wind up dealing with like that inner conflict where you're like, why, why do I, why do I care about this? Why do I care what someone thinks, you know, or like, why am I comparing myself to someone who is a banker? You know, <laughs> I know that's interesting though. Cause it's sort of like, do you press into that conflict and say like, let's 
analyze it? Like, like, should you feel guilty that you feel conflicted? Or should you just be like, fuck it, I'm jealous of people who make a lot of money. Yeah. I could have made money, but I decided not to. Like, which one's right? I don't know. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, and it's, it's it, you know, but it's like, is it better to live in the canyon or is it better to live in the gated community? And it's like the grass is, <laughs> the grass is always greener because you're pursuing, so you're pursuing your creative vision and waiting tables. And then there's the dude who works at like, uh, JP Morgan and is working like 70 hours a week and makes 500 K, but like wants to kill himself, you know, or whatever. I know. So who knows? Who knows? You know, it's, it, it's, I like, think there's also this fantasy that if you do something that you love enough, that like those conflicts would be mitigated. And it's like, not really true. <laughs> like it's, you're still like living a life with all the same, like real life, real ego, real identity issues. It doesn't negate those things just because like, I don't know. When you were young, you thought you were like been called to a higher calling. Well, yeah, and it's like it's like it's all false summits too, and like, or maybe you can disagree. Mm. I, I know that I know there's a feeling of great satisfaction in getting your book published, especially the first one after all that um, struggle. So you know, it's it's not to diminish that, but you, you know, have you experienced like, oh well, I did it, and it's almost like a. I don't want to use the word letdown, but it's almost like, oh, like, the, you know, there's no fireworks. Like, it's just, it happened. And what I sort of find is that, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, it's it's not necessarily the moment of publication or acceptance that's the greatest moment that you remember, though those were nice moments. But it's the actual working on the book when things were going well. Oh, God. You know, oh, and that's, yeah. that's what you're most nostalgic for. So it sounds, you know, sort of, uh, I don't know self-helpy or touchy-feely but it really is like the moment that you're in and doing the work that matters and the fruit of the work is just sort of i mean it's like it really is like i as far as like from where i stand i mean like um it's not all that matters like i've started teaching and i love teaching so much it's like i have all the cheesy feelings of like a new teacher like I just showed my class um, The Way We Live Now by Susan Sontag, and I don't know how many of them had read it, but this one girl had never read it, and, like, just the look on her face, and it had nothing to do with me. I just sent them a link, but, like, it was kind of amazing, you know, and I probably wouldn't have been able to do that if I hadn't published a book, um, but certainly that was not what was motivating me to publish, um, so I think there are opportunities, but you don't, yeah, like, the idea that you would know what they were, I guess, is what turns out not to be so true yeah. but yeah i mean most most public authors i've talked to are like oh yeah like you must like, it's pretty anticlimactic huh like everyone <laughs> pretty much said that uh, <laughs> i was just emailing with my friends like right before you called actually and um you know she was basically saying the exact she's like it's always weirdly anticlimactic I'm like yep Sort of like when you're a kid and you think you'll feel different on your birthday and you don't. Right. Well, you know, just give it another like seven or eight years and, you know, you'll be podcasting and you'll, you'll see, you know, there's a, there's a long way to go. <laughs> <laughs> yes. There's lots of opportunities out there. Uh, yeah. It's wide open. So, uh, the book and I, you know, I was prepping, I was reading about you. Uh, I was reading some interviews that you've done and you've talked repeatedly about the, uh, the origin of it and like the Genesis creatively of, uh, this character and how you envisioned. Why don't you t Why don't you tell listeners how your book originated for you in terms of uh, the initial spark? Um, the initial spark. Um, I mean, I, I keep repeating this, and maybe time will change 
my sort of interpretation of what happened, but I was really sitting, just sitting there, staring at the computer at Paragraph, which is a workspace that you can pay for on 14th Street in Manhattan, and this voice just came into my head, as far as I was concerned, out of the blue, saying some of the things I do on the farm is get the eggs, and it was really this sort of, like, incorrect grammar of saying, like, some of the things and then just listing one thing that, I don't know, it just really, like, completely overtook, like, my whole creative space, like, in an instant. Um, it was one of the most sort of, like, exciting things that's ever happened to me in a way. Um, it really did feel like love at first sight. Or um, So I wrote eight pages that day, and then I think, like, 80 pages I don't know, in the next few months. And then came, like, the shitty part where it actually felt like work and was like, what is this? Like, why has my, like, creative muse left me? Like, where is the story supposed to go? You know, I was 24. Like, what did I... I didn't know how to write a book. Um, and so the other characters got introduced, and then, and then it was just dealing with this, like, completely unwieldy... Like, I hesitate to use the word mess because had a little more, I don't know, shape than a true mess, but it was pretty messy. Um, and then it just like, I had to become the analyst of my own work, which was so hard and I was so not used to it. And it was really like, you know, trial by fire. What are these characters' motivations? What are they doing? What story are you telling? Um, and they were all questions I didn't have answers for. So, um, Ooh, it's awful. Yeah. That, that, that not knowing is painful, you know, but you, it's, it's, it's painful. Yes. So I, you know, and I don't, um, I don't want to get too shrinky on you, but like, I'm thinking, okay, this, this book is born when you're imagining a young child gathering eggs. Like, uh, do you want to be a mother someday? Like I'm thinking there's some sort of like maternal thing going on. Yeah, I think there's like, I mean, it's so funny because not only is, like, the the main character get, gathering eggs, there's a pregnant teenager living on this farm, <laughs> and there's this kind of, like, nefarious woman who hasn't been able to conceive who's, like, obsessed with getting a baby. Um, and I, like, didn't even think about the book about motherhood at all because I was really only cognizant, for the longest time, I was only cognizant of the language, and I, like, considered myself some sort of, like, Gertrude Stein, like, deconstructionist. Like, I was just <laughs> going to, like, put the words out there, and, like, it's up to the reader to decide what it means. But that was all, like, just an excuse, because I didn't really know what was going on. But um, That's a good excuse. Yeah, I'll, I'll, have said, to, I'll have to use that one at some point. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's not my job. <laughs> but... Then people were like, this is a story about motherhood. And, like, my editor, you know, said something like, people were bringing it to my attention that it was, like, very obviously all about motherhood. And I was kind of like, oh, yeah, I guess it is, you know. I hadn't really thought of it that way. So do, do you have... In terms of me specifically, I do want to be a mom, yeah. Okay, do you have, you don't have kids yet, though? No, I don't have kids. Um, so I've. My fiance and I are getting married in September. We've been together for over eight years. Uh -huh. Takes me a really long time to get anything done. <laughs> Congratulations! <laughs> so I basically been like, yeah, I've been like dating him and working on this book and working at the restaurant forever. Um, and so yeah, we'll probably like, like hopefully, God willing, like to start a family. 
Wow. And this is like prep, you know, like it, there's something biological about it. I mean, not everybody does it. You don't have to do it, but you know, you can sit there and hem and haw about it all you want. There's something biological. I mean, it's stating the obvious, but I guess when you get to a certain point in your life, especially like the point that you're at, you're about to get married. You're what in your late twenties. Yeah, I'm 29. 29. Yeah. Oh God, that's it. And all of a sudden it's like, you know, and it could have been just like two years ago. It was not even like a passing thought. And then suddenly it is, or, you know, this book is like maybe laying the groundwork for it. I mean, I don't know. Do you think that's the case? Yeah. Bringing things. Oh my gosh. Well, definitely with like us getting engaged and getting married. Um, and it was just so hard for me to imagine. I don't know, like not, not, the commitment was not hard to imagine, but there was something very hard to imagine, like planning some huge, like, I don't know, like, what would you call it? Like a right, like this enormous rite of passage or something, this marriage where like this thing was still inside of me that wasn't out, like the book. It was really like, I could not think about it. And then it was when the copy edits were done, I was like, yeah, let's get married. Right. I'm ready. Right. You know, there's just like, no, it's like writing is such a selfish thing too, or maybe selfish is the wrong word, but no, it's it makes selfish. you into like a very self-absorbed person, yeah. you know? Well, there's an element to making art that is undeniably self-centered. You have to be sort of fierce with your time and, you know, closed off from yeah. people. It's just a, it's a, it's a necessity of it. You know, you can't get the work done unless you do that in, in a, in a sense. Um, and then there's also something, you know, very, um, gestational <laughs> about writing, mm-hmm. especially writing a long form book. I mean, a short story, whatever, but it, when you're writing a novel or some sort of longer book, uh, it does feel like childbirth. Like even for a guy, like I felt like I gave birth when my book came out, <laughs> you know, like you're, yeah. you feel protective of it in a way, like in, in a, you know, in oh, a, so protective. Yeah. So there's like, you know, there's some similarities there and it takes a long time for it to, to birth, you know, for most of us. Mm-hmm. And then I'm sure it's, like, not what you expect it would be like and doesn't just put everything, I don't know, like, I'm I'm sure it has its, like, realities that are so real that you never would have been able to, like, abstract them while the baby was in utero. And then you're like, I don't know, it's got to be some, maybe not rude awakenings, but, like, okay, there's a difference between my (laughs) fantasy and this reality. Well, no, my wife and I, I mean, God, we had multiple conversations where we're just like, what if it's going to, what if it's evil? You know, like what if, <laughs> what if we just have like the bad seed, you know, like it could have, cause those, those kinds of human that beings. That's such a funny thing. I don't think I've ever heard anyone having that be their worry. Oh yeah. Well, what if it's evil? That wasn't the only worry, but that was certainly, I mean, we, we went through every single one we could think of, but that was one of them. It was just like, Oh God, what if it's just like, she's just a monster. <laughs> That's uh, so funny. Well, I take it that's not the case. No, she's an angel. She's a she's a sweet. We really did have, we did luck out. She's a sweet kid. Good. Um. So I guess last question: Like, are you getting married in the canyon? Is are you taking no. t- taking things back to the canyon? I'm not. not. No, I'm getting. We're getting married in Montauk, which I think has a very West Coast vibe for an East Coast place. Um, and it is it is going to be. I want it to be very bohemian. So I guess that's the part that comes full circle. I'm like, the theme of our wedding is bohemian. And Jane's my fiance is like, 
that means people with no jobs. We're like, you're saying that our theme is like unemployment. No, (laughs) the romantic version of the term. That's like the uh, the beach. Montauk is uh, eternal sunshine and the spotless mind, right? That's where. Yeah. That's where Mm -hmm. they. Okay. On the beach? Are you like barefoot on the beach kind of thing? We'll see. Like the reception is on the beach at a motel, but I've planned this whole reception. I've been planning it for months and months and months and months. And I realized I didn't plan the ceremony at all. So as it stands now, we have nowhere to get married, but we do have somewhere to party afterwards. Well, you've got your so, pri- you've got your priorities straight. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, con- so. congratulations on all of it. You know, like the book, uh, the impending wedding, and what will surely be a brood of at least six children. Uh, oh God, don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> two sets of triplets, and uh, yeah. Know. How no. could you wish that upon me? Yeah. <laughs> hey, you know, they're little bundles of joy. But it sounds like it's an exciting time in your life, and uh, I wish you well with the rest of the book launch and all the you know publicity stuff, and then also uh, on future projects. Thank you so much. All right, you guys, there you go. That's it. That's Julie Sarkissian. Go get her novel, Dear Lucy. It is available now from Simon and Schuster. You can find Julie online at juliesarkissian.com. She's on Twitter, at SarkissianJulie. And she's also on the Facebook. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the good music. Be sure to go check out killrockstars.com. And, hey, be sure to get the app, the free official Other People app, It's the official app of this program. It's available now free of charge for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You can download episodes to listen to offline. Uh, You can organize your favorite episodes, and you can also uh, access premium content and the full archives via the app. So please go get that. It's free. Uh, Otherwise, thanks again for the mail. Thanks for weighing in with uh, your thoughts on the program. The email address, again, uh, is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. So let me know what you think. Send word. Please remember that William Gaddis died of prostate cancer and that Mozart was addicted to billiards. I'll be back again on Sunday with another show, another program, another episode, another author, another conversation another monologue, another dialogue, you name it. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Julie Sarkissian. Go get Dear Lucy. And uh, that's it. I'm done. I quit. I'm finished. We have completed today's uh, journey. We have made it to the finish line together. Are you still with me? (laughs) 